Hello, I'm Alan Musbridger, editor of Prospect Magazine, and with me today are the winner of the Bennett Prize, Walter Pascarelli, and Dennis, Professor Dennis Groove from the Bennett Institute for Public Policy in Cambridge. And we're here to, first of all, congratulate Walter on his prize and discuss the theme in it. First of all, Walter, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from. You, you, you've worked and studied in a lot of different, different places, but it would be good just to get a sense of where you came from and how your interest in this subject, which we'll come on to in a minute, originated. Well, thank you so much, Alan. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Also, Dennis, great uh, to chat with you as well today. Um, yeah, my name is Walter. I'm currently working as a policy research manager at Economist Impact. Economist Impact is the research and analysis arm of The Economist. A um, uh, bit about myself. I'm actually Italian, but I spent not very much time in Italy. I grew up mostly in Germany, but when studying, first of all, in the Netherlands, and then later on for postgraduate studies in Cambridge, where I studied politics. Quite soon after I actually started my graduate studies, I became quite interested in the politics of technology. Shortly after, just like in 2017 and 2018, the Cambridge Analytica scandal broke loose, and I really started becoming very curious about not only the positive impact that technology can create, but also really about the risks that need to be managed when we actually try to implement these technologies at scale. Through that, that almost functioned as a seg segue for me to getting into a career into the responsible use of technology. I started working, first of all, for a small consultancy, which tried to foster digital transformation processes within government. I was seconded for quite a significant time within the, at, in, in the Open Data Institute, where I really learned there of how data can be used for creating public good at both, let's say, like the public level, industry level, but also within government. And that really sparked an interest for me all the way now throughout my career to use technology for transforming organizations, for using technologies to getting new insights and creating a public good for citizens and users. That's great background. Walter, thank you. And Dennis, why don't you just tell us a little about the Bennett Institute and about yourself and why the Bennett Institute holds this prize? Alan, thanks very much, and terrific to be with you and Walter to discuss this. So, look, the Bennett Institute is an institute for public policy at Cambridge. We're relatively new on the landscape at four years old, and we're really interested in research-led work that is outwardly facing. So we're interested in connecting with the big problems that are out there in public policy and can hopefully contributing to the solutions and the conversation about the solutions and that is part of what led us towards this Bennett Prospect Prize in collaboration with Prospect to each year ask some of the brightest minds in the UK and overseas to tackle some of the really big policy questions that are out there. So my, my own research is on political decision-making and leadership and the civil service. And so I'm particularly interested in this year's question, which is about what is the civil service for? Because for so often, what we see is that civil service reform is treated as essentially an exercise in cutting numbers of civil servants. And really what we wanted to do here is take a step back from that and just ask that foundational question, what is the civil service actually for in the 21st century? What do we want it to do? What does success look like? 
And those sort of questions are very much what Walter and his fellow contestants addressed in their in their essays. So we we had a rich crop of entries for this year's prize. Walter, your prize your prize winning mission was slightly different in that you didn't write an essay. Explain to us the thought process that went into not writing an essay and coming up with your thoughts in a different medium. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's that, that's correct, Alan. I actually made a, a short video documentary. I got into making these video documentaries actually during the pandemic. I thought it would be very interesting and see what happens if I would, uh, let's say, once per week produce a short one-minute or two-minute analysis of what goes on in the world of, say, policy, in the world of tech policy, very much inspired a little bit by how Ian Bremmer does it with sort of his, like, the world in 90 seconds. I first started filming it with my phone. I have an iPhone SE. <laughs> so it was the front camera of my phone, which sort of produced like an acceptable quality, I thought initially. But then after a while, I started switching through, let's say, uh, a camera essentially. And I enjoyed not only sort of the intellectual process of film, uh, of sort of like researching and, and trying to condense an issue within 30 seconds or a minute, but also the creative one, playing with images maybe playing with, with animations as well, because I think that much more information can be conveyed through that. I think the video was a little less than 10 minutes. And instead of only writing, you can convey information, first of all, yeah, orally, but also through animation, through sound, through some footages that you blend in. I feel it allows to communicate in such a more effective way that I thought this was the way that a topic as, as important and as, as large as sort of civil service reform certainly deserves to, to obtain. Well, obviously, we hope that as a result of this podcast, we'll go off and watch the video. But I'm afraid today in plain old um, steam age podcast era, you're going to have to describe to listeners your message. So, uh, it, you, using the technology available today, i.e. your voice and our ears, can you summarize the thesis of the video? Of course, yeah. Very happy to do that verbally. So, the, um, the idea of, a, of the semantic civil service, I, as, I, as I called it, is very much grounded into something that Dennis mentioned just earlier as well, which is the question of what should a civil service of the 21st century be for? The context of that is, of course, different kinds of challenges. We start out, I would say, really as far back as like the 2008 financial crisis. We continue with Brexit, COVID. Right now we have an energy crisis, international instability. So it really requires and not only so, let's say, a change of like incremental reforms, like cost cutting, efficiency of the civil service, but it was thinking more about what large scale transformations can we actually produce to allow this new civil service or to allow still the same civil service actually to tackle these kinds of challenges. The semantic civil service essentially is a civil service that is designed by the technologies of the semantic web and web three. So it's really like a remodeling of the civil service uh, through these cutting edge technologies that allows us to make more effective policymaking. It's an evolution of the government as a platform model as was proposed in 2010 by, by Tim O'Reilly that develops from sort of a model that is inspired by the web 2.0 technologies into the web three one. Some people will be unfamiliar with the term semantic web. They're Probably our older listeners have just 
grasped hold of something called Web 2.0, and they'll be surprised to hear that there's something called Web 3.0 coming along already. So can you just unpack those terms a bit, just so that you bring everyone with you? So there's, what do you mean by the semantic web, and how does that transfer across to something called the semantic civil service? Yes. The semantic web is essentially a model of the internet that was popularized predominantly by Tim Berners-Lee in the 1990s. And it had essentially three characteristics that are the same characteristics that I apply as well in describing the semantic civil service. The first one is one that is decentralization. So instead of having large platforms, large organization that all centralize data of users, this data is actually centralized and provided to users. So in practice, instead of having, let's say, a government that holds all of the data about citizens, citizens might actually have something like a digital wallet themselves that has some data with, for example, some health records, for example, some financial data, and they themselves can determine access controls to it. That's, a, that's one principle from the semantic web that we can see as well coming to life in the semantic civil service. The second one is the principle of openness. Again, semantic web has the hypothesis that by tearing down these data silos, so again, instead of having everything in one big store, data can actually be linked between organization and between different kinds of departments so that we can generate new insights, see new perspectives, and make better decisions. And the final element is then automation. And automation, as the term itself explains, relies on the fact that through applying machines, through applying advanced machine learning technologies, we can automate certain tasks that might be repetitive and that way increase efficiency and reduce costs. So that's the target that you're describing. How far away from that is the civil service as does it exist today? I mean, if we start with decentralization, I'm guessing you're about to tell us that the current, the current civil service is very centralized. They've got lots of data on us, but we don't have any uh, control over our data. So it's an interesting, it's actually a very interesting point. There is a little bit of, um, so we are starting to see sort of the um, uh, like policy and political will actually moving in that direction. So if we look at, for example, let's take the topic of a digital infrastructure, which is necessary to have to transfer all this data between departments and between users, it definitely needs to be updated, that's clear, but it's long been discussed to sort of increase connectivity within government uh, and also between government and users. If we take the topic of, let's say, decentralization of data, sure, that is still something that is in the, in the process of being, of, of being discussed. There are some pilots that are going on, but at the European Union level, for example, there are, are already some projects that are starting to explore this more effectively industry level even more so, specifically in the financial services sector. And another one, if we take sort of the, the third element, which is the openness one, I think it's mission five of GDS and a report published by the House of Lords with advocates for sort of tearing down these silos. So I would say there is definitely a timeline that is not, that is not any shorter than say the next 10 years on that. But I think that the policy is going definitely in the direction of creating something that looks more akin to that. Dennis, let me let me bring you in on the conversation at this point. I mean, when you saw Walter's film, when you how, how does this fit into the kind of work that you and your colleagues are doing 
in, in thinking about what a civil service is, should be, could be. In, in, in some corners of the body politic these days, the civil service is described in unflattering terms. It's it's the blob. It's it's the thing that stops politicians from wanting to being able to do the things. It's unresponsive. It's mired in orthodoxy. Maybe this is a question for you, Dennis. Just to I mean, how much of that is true? And then I'll come to Walter to see how much uh, he thinks his vision of what it could be could shake things up a bit. It's a great question, Alan, and I certainly recognise the critique. What I would argue, I guess, is that to some extent, if the civil service is seen as this kind of restraining force, it might be a sign that it's partly doing its job. So yes, the job of the civil service is to deliver for governments, to deliver the agenda that governments are democratically elected on. It's the civil service's job to be responsive. But it's also the civil service's job to provide frank and fearless advice around government policy. And I think we can see in some of the travails of the, of the present government that there are elements of the institutional infrastructure, if you like, of the civil service, arm's length agencies like the Office for Budget Responsibility, that play an important role in providing a sense of ballast within our system of government. The, the reverse, we, in the same week, we've also heard um, Dame Kate Bingham, who was in charge of delivering on the vaccine, saying, well, actually, she found there were no scientists in the civil service, and they were trying to frustrate what she was doing because they didn't have the entrepreneurial mindset. They didn't have the sheer scientific knowledge that was necessary in order to move quickly. It's, it's an, in an inherent tension, I would argue, in the structures of our decision-making and not necessarily an unhealthy one. So if we need scientific knowledge, we had the SAGE group able to provide that scientific knowledge. We had political drive, a really important political drive from people like Kate Bingham, but also from ministers. And we had civil servants capable of saying, look, this system will, will deliver that for you and this system over here will not. And the tension between those three elements can lead when it's operating well, to good policy outcomes. That doesn't mean that all three elements aren't sometimes frustrated with each other. And I think that's what we saw during COVID. Walter, you mentioned the GDS, which is the Government Digital Service. How effective has that been in being able to break down the silos that Dennis was talking about, that you talk about, to, to create the kind of semantic web that you, semantic civil service that you think is necessary? Interesting. I would say one of the things about GDS, it has been effective notwithstanding the silos, right? Obviously, GDS can create a degree of pressure to central government to make sure that these kinds of like silos are actually broken down, but they have to operate within sort of the existing structures that are in place right now. But something that I do think is quite interesting is I've seen a report just in the process of developing the, the documentary on the semantic civil service, a report from the IFG that basically tried to understand the challenges that the civil service is currently facing. One of them was, for example, the fact of being unresponsive, as you just said, Alan, particularly when it comes to decentralization of policymaking. And another one is, for example, again, the second point that you mentioned, just, Alan, is about the recruitment and the finding of talent within the civil service itself. And I think one of the key factors, if we take, for example, the latter point, is if we look at the semantic civil service, 
is that the IFG report said that there wasn't necessarily a lack of quantitative talent within the civil service itself, but it's the localization of it, right? And if we have these silos between these departments that can actually be pushed at least through this web of data, that allows us much more easily to determine where this talent is within the civil service and make use of it as these kinds of challenges arise. Similarly, with the decentralization element, if you have something like a, more data that you obtain through citizens and a decentralized sort of repository of data sets, that allows you as well to better understand the local context and produce policies that are made in a way that take into account the local challenges. So I think there is a couple of, it feels all like an interrelated web of challenges, but also solutions that solving them together can actually allow to make the civil servant more effective overall. I think I began life as a digital utopian, and I've tried to hold on to my utopian feelings about what the digital technologies do, but I, but I struggle sometimes, and I suppose we have to accept that uh, the, the, the big tech companies of the West Coast are not greatly loved these days. And people have spent a lot of time and ingenuity trying to do some of the things that you describe, Walter, in, in particular, this business of, in a sense, owning our own data, as opposed to Facebook and Google knowing everything about us, but us not being able to uh, do much with it. And if it's proved so hard in the context of those West Coast giants and especially the power that government can hold over us, the sort of big brother element of government, this is not going to be an easy task, is it? That's actually an, ex an excellent question. I think when we look at, for instance, the, just to make the comparison between these tech giants that you mentioned, the entire or a large part of the business model is based on, this, on the concentration of data, right? So it's like the very establishment on, of these platform economies is what dominates the business model. So naturally, it will be very difficult to change that up because that would mean a fundamental redesign of how these companies are run. I think for government, it's a little bit different. Sure, there is, of course, this, let's call it power imbalance, a power dynamic that is at play there where government might want to have more data about us to make more decisions and have a 360 degree view of the citizen. But if anything, I think with the current situation and things being siloed and some data about us that we that is sort of dispersed either in the Internet or with other companies, having something like these kinds of data wallets can actually encourage to have more data available whilst allowing citizens to have a direct control over it. I know that in the financial services sector, there has been quite a lot of investment to have to stimulate citizens to basically have control over some of the data that they have. But then as they use, for example, some smaller challenger banks that they can actually provide access to this kind of data. I think in the government, it wouldn't be any any different, only that perhaps the user friendliness of these data wallets would be something that citizens would have at, at greater disposal. Dennis, Walter's third leg of his vision was openness. That's civil services sometimes struggle with, don't they? We're honest, They're, they play lip service to openness, but, but it's not the first word that would spring to mind when one thinks about Whitehall. Yes, I'm trying to cast my mind back to classic Yes Minister episodes here, Alan. <laughs> I, I may have this quote wrong, but there's one that springs to mind, something along the lines of you can have open government or you can have government. You can't, in fact, have both. Look, I think in many ways... The modern civil service and the system of government in which it sits was built 
for governing in private. So, you know, it's from the time of the North Northcote Trevelyan Report onwards, really, the Westminster system of government is around centralised decision-making by groups of people that know each other uh, and have private conversations about things which are then made public or shared with the public when they're ready to do so. I think the 21st century has changed that dynamic, whether, whether we like it or not and whether civil servants like it or not. And I make the argument that we're essentially now governing in public in new ways because of the 24-7 news media, but also because of all the pressures for transparency, which is seeing modern civil servants sort of dragged into public debates more than they traditionally would have been and is putting them in positions especially in a sort of hyper-partisan political environment that, that we've been in the last few years, where they are having to become slightly more public figures and, you know, engage in public critique sometimes of aspects of government. So I think the operating environment is changing and that will bring with it cultural changes within the civil service in the next sort of five to ten years. Well, Walter and Dennis, thank you so much for joining this podcast. I urge everyone who has joined us today to have a look at Walter's film. It was such a, a jolt to the system to be challenged to watch something rather than read something, but it, it's well worth the investment of time, and it is only 10 minutes. Walter, you did very well today using mere words to describe what you were trying to do, and it was great to have Dennis's wider perspective and longer perspective on, on the problem. And that's what this Bennett Prize is for. So thank you for joining us and please go and watch Walter's film.